Welcome to the Science Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, and joining me today is Professor Arlen Myers, President and Co-Founding CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. Arlen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. So, you know, we're excited to get into this conversation with you about innovation in the medical field. But before we do that, I'd love for you to give me an elevator pitch on the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. So tell me a little bit about what your organization does. What's y'all's mission statement? Sure. Um, The Society of Physician Entrepreneurs is a global nonprofit biomedical and clinical innovation and entrepreneurship network. Our mission is to help members get their ideas to patients or help someone who is. And I like to tell people that uh, we're a cross between Match.com and Rotary. In other words, we're a global dating service and we do our business through local chapters. I love that. So you're, you're linking people with like minds and liked interests. Exactly. The idea is to put people together in a room that are like-minded and just let nature take its course. Uh, I like to say our chapter meetings are places where ideas go to have sex. (laughs) I love that. I love that. So tell me a bit more about your journey and how you ended up co-founding this organization. So it's a fairly long story, but the short version is uh, I'm a academic ear or or was an academic ear, nose and throat surgeon for most of my professional career uh, at the University of Colorado. I'm now an emeritus professor of uh, otolaryngology, which is ear, nose, and throat surgery and facial plastic surgery. And during my academic career, basically uh, myself and several other people were involved in inventing or creating a gadget or a company. And in the course of doing that, we learned a lot about commercializing life science ideas. And what we learned from, what I learned from that was uh, Every scientist, engineer, health professional I know has a good idea. Um, They have absolutely no clue what to do with it, including me when I had it. And it's extremely unlikely, although things are changing, that they're ever going to learn what to do with it during their formal training. So that was really the impetus to create the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs because we were trying and still are trying to fill that market gap. So basically you saw a need for yourself, something that you needed to fill for your own personal entrepreneur drive, and you wanted to then bring that to other people and give them the chance to do the same? Yeah. And I mean, that's an example of what I call uh, entrepreneurs making it personal, but not taking it personally. Um, You know, something happens to you or you have a loved one or you have an experience or you see something and you say, you know, this isn't right. I'm going to do something about it. And that's basically what we did. I love that. So what was that first product for you or that first innovation that you wanted to bring uh, to the healthcare industry? Yeah. So I've been involved in several ventures myself, and now I consult or advise or have a medical director to several companies. But in those days, what we were working on is a, uh, or worked on was a device that optically detects cancer. So it's like a Geiger counter for cancer, except it detects abnormal cells instead of radioactivity. It's a light device, laser light sort of device. So we were very involved in bioengineering, biophotonics, interacting the light with matter, that kind of stuff. And um, I like to tell people that, uh, you know, when, when I'm keeping score of my companies that I had personally something to do with it, 
four organizations. I'm probably two, one, and two. And this one was high. In other words, we we got it to a certain level. We were able to attain some intellectual property protection, but we really never did get it out into the public. And what happened to it is a long story. But the point is, it wasn't a win. It wasn't a loss. It, it was a tie, what I call, and, and a good learning experience. Sure, sure. So, I mean, that that product in and of itself feels feels really advanced. How did you get inspired to invent that product and to, to bring it to the healthcare industry? Well, I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. So I spend most of my time dealing with particularly head and neck cancer and reconstructive problems and more subspecifically in the oral cavity. So what I recognized as a clinician was the need to non-invasively differentiate, diagnose, and treat uh, problems in the mouth better than we presently do it. Uh, it's, it's an example of where physicians, you know, sort of see this stuff day in and day out, and they ask themselves, how come, what if, how about if we do this, that kind of thing. And then if they have the right mindset, they go after the solution. I love that. So it, since you've been in the field, is that how you've seen most physicians find the passion for that new innovative product is that, you know, they're in the field, they're doing the work and they see a problem and they're not sure how to fix it. So they decide just to do it themselves. Yes and no. Um, in the early stages of product development and innovation, first of all, there's, you have to have the right entrepreneurial mindset and, and most people, not just doctors, but most people have a million ideas a day and they just wind up going down a drain. So unless you have an entrepreneurial mindset to do something and translate the idea into an invention and translate the invention into either an improvement or an innovation, then an idea is just that. It's a thought that sticks in your head and never sees the light of day. So the difference between someone who actually does something and someone who just says, well, that was an interesting idea, really has to do with mindset. There are different kinds or flavors of physician entrepreneurs. There are small to medium enterprise business people, what we would call private practitioners, although sometimes they don't realize it. Uh, there's a, a large group of employed physicians, what we would call intrapreneurs, employed physicians trying to act like entrepreneurs in their organization. They're technopreneurs, people who are trying to get a device or a gadget to market. There are physician investors, there are social entrepreneurs, and there are uh, 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 others who help other physician entrepreneurs as service providers. For example, marketing sites, SEO consultants, physician coaches, wealth managers, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at that matrix, you know, it's probably 20, 25 boxes you could fill and you just you just you just sort of have to pick your spot. Yeah, it sounds like there's a spot for anyone though. I mean, depending on what your interest is, there's there's some route for you to take there. Well, what I've just described describes essentially every doctor in the world. So, you know, that's that's what, you know, the marketing people or the planning the business model canvas people like like to call the uh, the total addressable market. Well, when you look at the you know, the, the service addressable market and then the target market, what really differentiates every doctor in the world from people who actually do it is an entrepreneurial mindset. 
because mindset precludes most, if not all, innovation. So in my view, and I've been around the world talking about this stuff and meeting with people, the, the reason um, my view is about one to maybe 2% of engineers, scientists, and doctors have an entrepreneurial mindset. And the reason why is fundamentally because that's not how they get picked to get to graduate school or medical school. In fact, they get picked to conform, not to innovate. I tell people, if you're going to get into this field, innovate your heart out. Just don't tell anyone you're doing it, and particularly, particularly at the medical school interview. I mean, the last thing in the world you want to say to somebody like me, because I spent some time interviewing people for medical school residency slots. So if I ask you, you know, why do you want, in this case, why do you want to go to the University of Colorado and why do you want to be a doctor? The last thing in the world you want to say is, you know what? I really don't want to be a doctor. I just want an MD after my name so I can start a biotech company and get some credibility. What the interviewer wants to hear is, oh, I want to, I want to take care of indigent patients in rural Colorado. I want to do research. I want to work with residents. I want to make the world a better place. That's not, a, but, but the problem is if you discount those people, then it's a question of, do you pick the best athlete? I would rather take someone in medical school who goes on to create a biotech company that employs a thousand people and could potentially cure hundreds of thousands than a person that sees 20 patients a day for 40 years. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with doing the latter because I did it. That's what I did. But I, I think at this stage of the game, I can be a lot more effective leveraging my skills doing what I'm doing than seeing another 20 patients a day for another 15 years. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if someone has that drive and someone has the entrepreneurial mindset, they shouldn't be dissuaded. They should definitely go for it. You know, it kind of reminds me of I'm kind of getting myself ready for the new Avengers movie coming out in a few days and, um, you know, watching clips of it online. And one of the superheroes mentioned, you know, if you have the powers you have and you don't use them, then, you know, it's kind of it's kind of on you if things don't change. So that that's exciting. You know, it's it's great to see that you're encouraging people to put that mindset to good use. So you mentioned that there are a lot of obstacles and, you know, a lot of roadblocks. What would you say in your experience are some of the biggest struggles that you've faced bringing some of these projects together? Well, if you look at the if you look at the literature and you look at sort of why is it that some organizations or industries are better at innovating than others? Um, and sick care is one of them. I call it sick care because, you know, we spend $3 trillion, over $9,500 a person in the United States. And, and most of that, the large majority, 90-something percent, is taking care of sick people. It's not reimbursing or paying people to be healthy. It's not care. It's not chronic care management. It's not wellness. It's not disease prevention. It's taking care of sick people. So we have a sick care system that politicians and other people masquerade as a healthcare system. The idea is to migrate the sick care system to the healthcare system because an ounce of prevention, da 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 da. So we just can't keep doing what we're doing. It's going to collapse. Every year, people say, "Oh, we can't withstand this percent GDP spend." Every year we do, but eventually it will collapse. So 
the only way we're going to go get ourselves out of this mess is to innovate our way out of it. And that will require a change in mindset. So what are the barriers? It basically comes down to culture. It comes down to people. It comes down to structure and it comes down to process. And when you look at those four in sick care, every one of them is a significant barrier to change. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, it's it sounds like you've got problems coming at you from from every angle and it's, it's trying to combat that. Right. So I, I tell people, again, I was, in, you know, I used to work at the University of Colorado. I'm an emeritus there now and I still do some stuff. But when I did it full time, Colorado is a state supported medical school. So I told people that I basically worked in the three most change resistant industries in the United States, higher ed, sick care and government. And it's guerrilla warfare. You can't mount a frontal assault. The, the, the people who are lined up, who are the vested interests, you're coming to a gunfight with a knife. So you have to be, you have to be very tactical and you have, it's a guerrilla war. So you gotta, you gotta pick your spot. You have to outflank them. You have to be willing to get wounded. You have to have people who can cover for you. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to make mistakes as an entrepreneur. You know, since you've been in this industry and you've been helping lead other people and you've been doing entrepreneurship ventures yourself, what are you know some of the trends that you've seen in the industry? Um, you know, places that you've seen new entrepreneurs going toward. And how do you think they're going to affect um, the healthcare entrepreneurship world in general? Well, probably the biggest one is how the fourth industrial revolution is impacting sick care. So the fourth industrial revolution is a, is a mental model that was conceived by the, um, the Davos folks. And um, basically, it's the collision of man, machine, essentially computer systems, materials, and biologic processes. So, it's, you know, it, it's what results in self-driving cars. Um, it's what results in, you know, AI and machine learning and all the magic words. So, so I think that's, so I think the fourth industrial revolution is probably, you know, what's upon us now and how we figure that out because it creates all kinds of ethical and social and economic problems that we're not prepared to deal with. Um, everything from the techno skeptics and the doom and gloomers and the Elon Musk's and AI is more dangerous than nuclear Holocaust um, to the people who are a lot more optimistic. So I think that's one, certainly the changing um, economy and the stress that sick care is putting continually on the system so what you're seeing are vertical and horizontal consolidation, do-it-yourself medicine, alternative care delivery mechanisms, value-based care, alternative reimbursement models, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then certainly technology and probably the biggest technological change has to do with digital health. And by that, I mean the application of information and communications technologies to exchange medical information. So there's innumerable examples of digital health ideas and maybe innovations. For example, uh, today I read an article about some folks at University of California, San Diego, 
who've concocted a, uh, a peel off like a tattoo or a movable tattoo that has a remote sensor on it for diabetics. So basically you, you stick it on your skin and it transcutaneously monitors your blood glucose. So then you, then you don't have to stick needles in yourself and do finger pricks and use all the glucometers and all that business. Well, those are, those are the kinds of things that could that are significantly impacting how patients are either taking care of themselves or their care providers are taking care of them. And then there's probably the last one, which has to do with, with data and the whole area of what do we do with data, particularly as it applies to patients. And all you have to do is pick up the newspaper and every day there's a story about revocation of net neutrality. And what does that mean? About Facebook, about cyber hacks, about et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this whole interface of confidentiality, security, patient rights, you know, should patients be allowed to patent their health data? Uh, is it a violation? Is it an, an illegal search and seizure under the Constitution? Is it a government taking? Because it's your information. Is, should the government be allowed to take this stuff for free? Should patients be allowed to sell their data? And if so, what would be the business model? There are all kinds of issues that are that are are on us now, and uh, and innovators and entrepreneurs are leader leading indicators. The politicians and the policymakers and the regulators are lagging indicators. It takes them years to catch up to these technological advances and figure out what to do with them. And that's basically where we are now. So the bottom line is, despite all of these conflicting forces. I don't think it's been, I mean, in my lifetime, uh, I think it's a great opportunity to innovate if you have the right mindset. There's all kinds of opportunity. You just got to figure out where your sweet spot is. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like there's a lot of trends that are emerging right now. And it, it really just seems like they're all interconnected. I mean, the, the handling of data, the ethical handling of data and artificial intelligence, I mean, you're seeing that affect industries across the board. And so it's it's interesting to hear you mention how it's affecting the healthcare industry. Um, are, are you or your organizations working on any projects, you know, within those fields that you're seeing trends in? Yes. So one, I could give you several examples and I'll give you three. I'm the, I'm the chief medical officer for a company called Bridge Health. It's a Denver-based company, which is a surgical, it's a value-based surgical benefits management company. So without going into all the gory details, basically, we provide value-based surgical care for patients who happen to be employees of self-insured companies, health insured companies. That whole process, without going through a lot of rigmarole, is data-driven. And I like to tell my colleagues that basically we're a data company that happens to take care of patients. And more and more, patient care, in my view, is becoming a loss leader. Everything else because the data is more valuable actually than the amount of money you take, you, you actually make taking care of the patient. So that's one example. A second is I'm a chief medical officer for a company called Cliexa, C-L-I-E-X-A. It's a patient reported outcome measurement information system. And patient reported outcomes are a big deal. So basically if right now you go to your phone and you download a Cliexa app, it'll allow you the opportunity to enter how you're doing 
pain, emotional areas, functional status, et cetera, et cetera. And it tells someone or something, in many instances, it's a thing, it's in the cloud and it's a beta, it's a database application, you know, how you're doing. So if you're a patient who has rheumatoid arthritis, getting a drug that costs $3,000 a month, that really isn't doing you any good. It would be useful for someone to know that instead of waiting six months for your next appointment with one of seven rheumatologists in the country to find that out. So, so that's another way to do it or a post-op recovery period or something like that. Um, and then finally, uh, I work with, some, with a, uh, a colleague called Anthony Chang, who is a pediatric, uh, in fact, he was just cited as one of the uh, top 10 chief innovation officers in the country. He works at the Children's Hospital of Orange County, and he runs an organization called AI Medicine. And the entire enterprise is, is around how do we use AI in medicine? And I'm involved in various aspects of that initiative. So they're all different kinds of ways. Again, these are all manifestations of the fourth industrial revolution impacting sick care. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exciting to hear all these different innovations that you're a part of and, you know, trying to find ways to solve those issues that are affecting every industry. So, you know, now that you've been doing this for a while and you've clearly got plenty of innovations under your belt, how would you advise someone that has the mindset but isn't really sure what to do next? You know, what would be your piece of advice for them to innovate in their field? Again, I deal with pretty much every day with health professionals, graduate students in bioscience and engineering. So I, I kind of work at the graduate level. I also do some for-profit work in P through 20 at middle school. I'm the chairman of the board of an organization called Global Minded, which is a diversity and equity platform for uh, at-risk students. So the basic idea, so if there's a theme to what I'm doing is I'm trying to help people be successful. That's what I do as a professor. And in this particular instance, I'm trying to help them be successful in biomedical and clinical innovation and entrepreneurship or in STEM innovation and entrepreneurship. So I see a lot of these folks and basically what I tell them is you don't know what you don't know. What got you to where you are now won't get you to where you want to go. In other words, you're going to have to come down off the mountain, like a friend of mine says. If you're a doctor and you're like Mr. and Mrs. Big Stuff and you've been through all this stuff and you know everything and you have all this society approval, you probably don't know what you don't know about physician entrepreneurship. So you got to come down off the mountain. You have to, you have to, you have to be humble and you have to learn. So basically what you're going to need is education, resources, networks, mentors, experience, and support. And that's why we provide that through the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. If, and you're going to have to be, you're going to have to kind of ramp up with all of those things to be successful to, or to fail. Because most people are going to fail. You're not going to succeed. The odds are not with you. You know, the very small number of companies survive more than five years. The good news is if you survive more than one year, you're more likely to survive the next year because you have customers and product and revenue, et cetera, et cetera. But you're going to have to get over that first hurdle. There's a lot of initiative at the startup. So that's what I'd suggest. So the best thing to do is to 
get those knowledge, skills, abilities, and competencies that you're going to need to give it a shot. And that's what we provide through SOAP. And there's certainly a lot of other places you can do it in your local community. So basically, you know, it's all about coming to the battlefield prepared. Um, And I, I really appreciate that kind of mentality. You know, I myself am trying to look into the future of what I'm going to do and trying to find ways to, you know, build a business around my skills and, you know, hearing, hearing that it's possible, even though it's difficult is, is always encouraging. I I mean, I think your lessons can apply to plenty of entrepreneurs across several fields. So, you know, thank you so much for that. My pleasure. Glad to talk to you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's podcast. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. Till next time.